Corner Fringe Ministries presents a three-part series titled, Once Saved, Always Saved. Enjoy this powerful teaching. We're going to begin a new study regarding the theological belief that is commonly known as once saved, always saved. It's also known as the doctrine of eternal security. Now just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard of this doctrine, this theology? A lot of you. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with this theology of once saved, always saved, it is in fact the fifth and final point and what is known as the five points of Calvinism. And these five points are famously known by its acronym, TULIP. TULIP. For those of you who are not familiar with TULIP, let alone Calvinism, let me just state, Calvinism very simply is this. It is a systematic theology of biblical interpretation regarding salvation. I should further add, as understood by John Calvin, okay, who uh, was a French theologian from the mid-16th century. Now, if you, and just as a side note, if you do a little study on church history, uh, you will discover uh, the this, this stuff that we're going to be talking about today, uh, the theological positions, um, they, they, they were not invented in any way by John Calvin. He merely systematized them, if you will. Really, John Calvin was influenced by an early church father known as St. Augustine, right? The Catholic Church holds him in very high regard. He has a lot to do with organizing some of the Catholic Church's theology, such as purgatory, etc. All right? Now, although the main focus for our study today is, in fact, only one point of the five points of Calvinism, the last point, the P, we are going to look at the other four points. I wasn't going to do this, but I decided to do this because I want to give you an idea where Calvinists are coming from or people that cling to the Calvinist theology because it's going to help you understand why they actually believe that once you are saved, you cannot in any way, it is impossible for you to lose your salvation. So with that said, let's begin to look at the first point in Calvinism, the T, total depravity. Total depravity. What does this mean? It means that we are completely unable to save ourselves, right? Total depravity. Sin. We're completely in sin. Let me give you some scriptures that support this theology. Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands there is none who seeks after God. They are all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now the Apostle Paul is quoting Scripture here. Psalm 14. Total depravity. There is none who does good. And he goes on in verse uh, 23 and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can you say total depravity? We're completely in our sins. And doesn't David in Psalm 51 state that he was brought forth in iniquity? In sin my mother conceived me, he said. I would say that's total depravity. And the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 7, he emphasizes this, his understanding in this total depravity. Listen to what he says, chapter 7, verse 18. 
For I know that in me, that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And you say, total depravity. We, we, we are seeing evidence of this in Paul's teachings. He goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Messiah Yeshua came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. It appears to me that Paul recognizes total depravity. Amen? Let's move on to the U. The U in tulip represents unconditional election. Unconditional election. This is where we get into predestination in Calvinism. This is where you start to see it. Unconditional election states the following, that salvation is purely by grace. There is nothing we can do to obtain grace. It's just freely given. It's not by works. We don't merit this grace. However, let me say this. Under the belief of Calvinism, God simply wills our election. In other words, our election has nothing to do with us. You have no say in the matter. God willed it, therefore you are. We've simply been predestined. This is predestination. One of the scriptures used to evidence this is found in Romans 8.29. Listen to what Paul says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Sounds like predestination. Unfortunately, Calvinism takes this passage like this, that our election, they interpret it as our election is unconditional. They take it that far that we have nothing to do with salvation. There's no condition with inside you to obtain your election. There's no, there's no condition that you can fulfill to get it. It's unconditional. However, can I say this? The biblical reality of that interpretation is somewhat different. I say this because unconditional election is not consistent with Scripture. We as believers must rely upon the preponderance of the evidence. That's how we have to rely. We have to rely on the totality of Scripture. Tota Scriptura. Let me give an example. When we go to Ephesians chapter 1, we realize that yes, it is true. We are, we are predestined. I believe in predestination but not the way the Calvinists do. I believe in, in the way that Paul details it and explains it. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and Messiah, just as he chose us in him. How are we chosen? We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by who? Yeshua HaMashiach. 
That's how we are predestined. It's through him, to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You know, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and again, going back to the totality of Scripture, you're going to discover something, and that is this, that our election is in fact anything but unconditional. It is very conditional. If you understand anything about grace, you know that grace is a gift. And every gift is in fact conditional upon acceptance of the gift. Yes, the gift is free. No, you didn't merit it. No, you didn't deserve it. It is a free gift, but it is contingent. It is conditional upon your acceptance. Let me give you a few biblical examples that show us God's election is in fact conditional. Psalms 103, verse 17 says, But the mercy, chesed, loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. That sounds pretty conditional to me. His mercy is given to those who keep his covenant and keep his commandments. That is a condition. And what's funny is, is this is literally the Psalms is just repeating what was already stated in the Ten Commandments. This is the second commandment. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 11.13 And it shall be that if, in the Hebrew, im, if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then, if, then, the response, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. Verse 26, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. Two paths are set before us. The blessing and the curse. In other words, we have free will. We have a choice to make. The blessing or the curse. Verse 27, the blessing if, conditional, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Let's jump ahead to Deuteronomy 30. It states this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if, im, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship after other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose 
life, that both you and your descendants may live. We have a choice to make. Do you understand? Predestination doesn't mean that God has imposed his will upon us. We are not robots. God has given us free will. And our election is very, very conditional. Hebrews 5.9 says this. Look at this. Having been perfected, he, meaning Yeshua, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's conditional. If you just consider, I want you to consider for the moment, the most basic understanding of covenant, meaning covenant with God. Understand, children of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt, representing the world, coming to meet God, drawing close to him, coming to enter into covenant with him. And what happens? They draw near, God speaks his words, and Israel's response is, all that the Lord has said, we will do. See, understand something. Covenant, I'll speak in modern day terms here, covenant is in fact a bilateral agreement. It's a bilateral contract. For those of you who are in the environment of legal contracts, you know what I'm talking about. A bilateral contract actually states it is a promise in return for a promise. Party one promises to do X, Y, Z. Party two promises to do A, B, C. It's a promise in exchange for a promise. But what you'll find oftentimes in bilateral contracts is that there will be verbiage in there. There will be clauses in there that states ramifications for breach of the contract to either party. Whether it's liquidated damages, whatever it is, there are some ramifications usually spelled out in these contracts. It is the exact same way in Torah. It is a bilateral agreement. In other words, conditional. That we fulfill our part. And if we do, God is held by his word. To do what? To bless us. Amen? To bring us into the kingdom of heaven. I want you to consider the heavenly example we've been given. Think about this for a second. The angels of God in heaven. Angels who saw, who walked with God, who worshipped God, saw him as he was and is in a state of pure holiness. They went back and forth in paradise as God sat on his throne. This is amazing to me. And yet, what does Revelation tell us? A third of the angels of heaven were cast out. They were cast out because they had free will to choose. Yes, they were deceived, but they chose their path. God did not make them robots, but even the angels of God have free will and choice, even though they were, what? Predestined to do what? To serve him. And yet, even in that scenario, God gives them free will. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. When they were not fallen, when sin had not entered the world, they were what? In a glorified state. It said that the glory of God covered them. They didn't need animal skins. They were not naked. Their sin was never exposed because they had never sinned. They were covered by the, the glory of God. And yet, what did the Lord do? In the Garden of Eden, he set before them life and death. He gave them a choice. You know, it's oftentimes you hear, why would God ever stick this tree that can make them fall and kill themselves? Because God doesn't, he never designed us as robots. 
He said, all the trees for food, those you may eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. They had life and death, the path, and they freely chose. But again, as the angels, they too, Eve was deceived, and Adam was completely disobedient. Scripture is clear. When you go out again in the totality, you go from Genesis to Revelation, you will reap what you sow. Conditional. All right, let's move on to the L. The L represents limited atonement. Limited atonement. And actually, some, of the, some people, they'll, they'll classify this as particular atonement. A particular group of people. That states that Yeshua died only for the elect. Okay? He did not die for everyone. Yeshua died only for a specific group of people. And Calvinists, to support this theology, they use passages like the following. In Romans chapter 9, a very famous passage on predestination. Uh, verse 18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Certainly sounds like predestination. It certainly sounds like we don't have a choice in the matter. Because if God wills it, that's the end of the discussion. Whom he wills, he hardens. Now what about, think about this, in, in John chapter 17, verse 9, you have Yeshua, before he's taken up to be crucified, he's in this prayer to his Father, this intense prayer. It's called the intercessory prayer. And in this prayer, he says something in verse 9. He says, Father, I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. Interesting statement. And Calvinists will bring this to you and say, this is beyond a shadow of a doubt proof. You have no say in the matter. It's not your decision. It's just God who's showing grace, imparting grace to you. Therefore, his will is imposed upon you. Therefore, it is. Now, certainly, these passages could be interpreted that Yeshua died only for the elect. Sure, if you're not looking at the totality of Scripture, Toto Scriptura, Scriptures as a whole, the preponderance of the evidence. Let me explain. When you look at Scriptures as a whole, you start to realize that evidence starts mounting. Abundant amount of evidence. That contradicts that the idea that Yeshua died only for the elect, that idea starts to dissolve quite quickly. For starters, John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture. What does it say? For God so loved the world, the cosmos in Greek, cosmos, the entirety. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him. Conditional. She'll never see death. Amen? Yes, limited atonement exists, but not in the sense that is being portrayed by Calvinism. Because limited atonement exists in the sense of you have the free will to choose, but only those who are actually going to make it are those who confess Yeshua as the Messiah and keep his commandments. That's what Revelation states, the, why, the, why the beast, the dragon, is so enraged with the woman. He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, the option of grace has been given to the entire world. But no way 
will Yeshua impose his will against ours. He wants us to love him freely. He wants to be loved, but he will never force us to do so. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wills, he desires that all men come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at what Peter says. He says the same thing that Paul says. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any, notice it doesn't say some, any should perish, but that all, again, doesn't say some, all should come to repentance. It's the will of God that the entirety of his creation be saved. The creation who was made in his image. But he will never force us to love him. He didn't force his angels. He didn't force Adam and Eve and their glorified state. He doesn't force us today. Let's move on to the eye in tulip. The eye represents irresistible grace really related to this limited atonement and unconditional election. They're all kind of uh, interwoven, if you will. And what does irres irresistible grace say? Well, it says, when God calls his elect into salvation, they simply cannot resist. In other words, an individual doesn't accept salvation of God by free will, but rather it's willed upon them. They cannot resist God's will. A story that I often hear Calvinists state to support this irresistible grace is in fact the story of Lazarus. Think about this. Yeshua comes into Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. Comes into Bethany. Lazarus had been dead four days. Mary, she's crying. Martha had presented, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing to him. He walks over to the tomb and he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. He said that the Lord of heaven and earth cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Did Lazarus have a choice in the matter? I mean, he's dead in the tomb. Could you imagine? And you being Lazarus, the Lord cry out, Lazarus, get up. And you say, Lord, I appreciate your hospitality, but I'm just going to go ahead and keep being dead. That's what I'm going to do. Do you really think he had a choice in the matter? And this is what the Calvinists are looking at. Of course he didn't. The Lord of heaven and earth gave a command, and there's none of us that could possibly rebel. He gave the command. But doesn't the exact same thing happen in John chapter 5, verse 28? Do not marvel at this. The Lord is teaching the Lord Yeshua. Do not marvel at this, for all who are in the graves will hear his voice, speaking Yeshua's voice, and they will come forth to the resurrection of life. Those who have done good, will come to the fourth to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. The exact same thing is happening. Nobody can resist his command. The graves at the resurrection of the dead, they will burst forth. They must obey him. He is Lord. But the problem is, is you, as a Calvinist, you can't translate this into this is what the Lord is doing for salvation. He is willing his salvation upon you. Because Scripture contradicts it over and over again. Let me give you an example of scriptural examples. Let me give you, I'm going to go throughout the Scriptures. 
I want to show you where God actually refused, or the people of God refused his grace. This irresistible grace you're going to find is very resistible. Just give you an example, Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. According to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. What an amazing passage. The grace of God was being extended to them all day long. And what's interesting is they turned from it. And if actually you continue to read through Isaiah 65, you find out they reap what they sow. Yeshua's not coming with that alarm yet. He's soon to come, but he's not coming quite yet. Matthew 23, verse 37. Listen to what he says. He cries out, Yeshua, he's crying out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is not unconditional. It's very conditional. This is not irresistible. This grace that he extends, his love, it can be resisted. The bottom line is the Lord will not force himself upon us because the Lord desires relationship, right? That's what love is. Isn't love relational? Scripture states God is love. Love is relational. And love is free. And love is willing of its own accord. Yeshua in in, um, John chapter 10 says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That was the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Amen? That love was free and it was willing. He wants the same from his children. He wants an equal response, a willing heart. You look at the tabernacle, how was it constructed? Those who were of a willing heart gave. So powerful. Well, we finally come to the heart of the matter. And that is the fifth and final point. We'll be talking about this point for weeks. There's a lot to be said. And that is the P, the perseverance of the saints. This is also known as once saved, always saved, or what we call eternal security. This is a theology that teaches you that it is impossible, impossible, I want to emphasize that. It is impossible for someone who gets saved to ever lose their salvation. Even though someone could come before the Lord, they could confess their sins, they could confess with their mouth that Yeshua is Lord, Master, Savior, their Redeemer. And even though they could have a life transformation and start walking according to the commandments of God, if they fall away for whatever reason, they get sucked into the cares of the world, Uh, the lust of the flesh, and they begin to walk according to the flesh, under the theology of Calvinism, under this P, perseverance of the saints, they will tell you that individual was never saved. This is a very, very dangerous theology that has the ability to cause someone, unknowingly, by the way, to sever his or her own conscience, to sever the godly sorrow, that conviction that's given by the Holy Spirit, that leads us to repentance, that leads us to salvation. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7. Let me give you an example of how this actually in real life plays out. I was listening to a Christian radio broadcast. This was a couple years ago. And uh, this particular program was open to callers calling in, and they were uh, asking questions, theological questions, regarding the, the, this specific topic was the grace of God. And so these callers were calling in, and they would ask a variety of questions. Well, this gentleman, he calls in, and he asked, and, and, and he um, get the pastor teacher, says hello, he introduces him, all that good stuff. He proceeds to tell him his problem, his dilemma. This was his dilemma. Someone had wronged him, had sinned against him, and he was struggling, as we all do, I will admit that, to forgive that person. When people wrong us, I don't know anyone that it's not a struggle to forgive them because you're in the right and they're in the wrong. It only makes sense to us in our flesh, right? And so I can, I can relate to this gentleman. He, he's struggling to forgive this person that someone had wronged him. And the guy even says, he quotes this to this teacher, this pastor. He quotes Matthew chapter 6. For if we do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will our heavenly Father forgive our trespasses. And he quotes this to them, and he's struggling. You can hear this intense conviction from him. The response that this pastor teacher gave him was that he shouldn't worry about it. He was bringing unnecessary stress in his life, something that was paid for at the cross. He was under grace. This teacher goes on to tell him, you're under grace, and nothing you can do or could not do will have any impact on your salvation. Let it go. If that wasn't terrifying enough, that advice, the response was even more terrifying. This man began to rejoice. And he was thankful that this burden, this conviction of godly sorrow, which is from the Holy Spirit to convict us, that leads us to repentance, that leads to salvation, he was overjoyed that he didn't have to carry that conviction, that burden any longer. And it was severed right there on air. Eternal security, as defined under Calvinism, really should be called a false sense of security. Because that's what it is. The very teaching itself removes the pain that is from the Holy Spirit, the pain of godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. I want that pain. I want to deal with that conviction. Please, God, give me more of it. None of us should want to go to bed without conviction knowing that we're displeasing the Lord in some way, since he gave his life for us. It's our reasonable service, amen? With that said, we're going to begin this journey into this once saved, always saved theology. But I, I want to do so by showing you some of the arguments. And, you know, remember, this congregation is a teaching ministry. You should be equipping the saints. You should be defenders of the faith. This is what you are called to do. Well, I want to show you some arguments that are posed by Calvinists to support this position. Is that the Lord? Okay. Doesn't Yeshua state that no one is able to snatch the righteous out of his hand? I mean, to me, that sounds like once he has me, I can never be taken. Let's look at this. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I gave them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I mean, that sounds like to me is once he has me, I'm golden. It's over. I don't got to worry about anything. Doesn't Romans chapter 8 say the same thing? Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What about Philippians 1.6? Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That sounds like once we start on this path, there's no way we can come off this path. What about 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to to bear it. Looking at these passages, it would appear that if in fact God has called us, then we can never be lost. That's, that's an impossibility. Because God would never tempt anyone beyond what he was uh, capable of handling. Therefore, if we catered to the lust of the flesh and we gave in to that, well clearly that's a sign under Calvinism that we were never saved. See, that's their simple answer. That's how they reconcile. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also believed, uh, having believed, you were sealed. You get that? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, you could look at this and say, once I've been sealed, once the Holy Spirit has come upon me, I've experienced the Spirit of God, that is my guarantee. I am golden. I'm as good as in the golden gates. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed. That's the proof of your redemption is the spirit of God dwelling in you is your proof of your redemption well with posing these arguments showing you these scriptures in support of once saved always saved I'm actually going to end here today but what I'm going to do over the next couple weeks we're going to take a look at these verses and we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about salvation in its totality and I am going to show you a plethora of evidence that talks about salvation and whether or not we can lose it. This is a very important topic because I want to say this. If we can never lose our salvation, if it's solidified, once you're saved, once you say a prayer, once you turn, if you can never lose your salvation, we need to be teaching that here because we need to be teaching truth. We need to be stabilizing the church in truth. Proverbs 23, it says, buy truth and do not sell it, right? But if it's not a correct interpretation and salvation can be lost, then we have to be preaching that. We need to be defenders of the faith, amen? So in the coming weeks, you're going to see a lot of 
awesome stuff. I, I promise you. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.